So I'd like to uh, open things up for some uh, questions, anything that's... Yes. I have a question on uh, this word compassion. Now, uh, so I speak Farsi and I speak English. The word for compassion in Farsi has a hint of suffering or kindness in it. It's like a mixture of both. It's this suffering with or knowing the suffering of others, not suffering yourself, mm -hmm. but knowing that it exists and it's mm -hmm. real with and meeting it with love and kindness. That's the meaning of that uh, quality. Mm -hmm. But in English, to me, it's it's more it's darker because it's just suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think maybe it has to do with what happened to Jesus has shaped the Western <laughs> world mindset around mm -hmm. compassion. Yeah. Now, in this karuna, I don't have a good understanding of what that word actually means as far as, is it more towards kindness or is it also, does it have the element of suffering in it? Uh, well, the, the English word empathy is... Um, uh, uh, comes closer because to empathize with the suffering of another is there's an appreciation rather I don't know what the Farsi word would be but it's shafaqat which has to do with yeah, knowing the suffering and mm. meeting it with kindness yeah, so to, empathy has very very similar meaning um, I feel one of the interesting things is that uh, all of those those Brahma Viharas and particularly for for equanimity and uh, and compassion, the, the the English doesn't really carry that kind of brightness. You know, abundant, exalted, immeasurable. It's like, ta da! It's like equanimity. Huh? It's, it's pretty flat. So serenity is a bit more carries that quality. So karuna, uh, along with that quality of empathy, there is that sense of a great brightness, uh, like an abundant, exalted, immeasurable. So that along with that appreciation of the suffering of others, it's met with a brightness of heart. You're obviously not glad about the suffering of others, mm -hmm. but there's a, um, an openness or, or um, a vast receptivity for the, the suffering of others. And that there, there's hard to convey that kind of radiant, vast quality in the, the, the also called the four immeasurables there. So the karuna, um, uh, any way of really conveying that, uh, or the four Brahma Viharas, the sublime abidings, the uh, ways of, uh, of uh, bringing into the picture that kind of vastness and brightness and and uh, so beauty of those qualities, that, that's a bit of a challenge just in terms of, of languaging. But it's interesting what you say about Farsi, that uh, it has the same kind of qualities of empathy. For Westerners coming into... Buddhist practice, then it, it is challenging that the cultivation of compassion, uh, it can be uh, like the uh, sort of increasing your suffering because of appreciating the, the suffering for, of others. The other word, anukampati, literally means to resonate or resonating or trembling together with or uh, with the suffering of others. So literally attuning to the suffering of others, resonating with. 
Sometimes to use the word like trembling for the welfare of all beings, it could be coming across as a bit of an anxious, oh dear. You know? <laughs> but it's not. It's more of a, I would say, the meaning of anukampati is that sense of attuning, being in tune with a resonating together with the, the suffering of others. There's an appreciation of that, but there's, um, there's a, a vast openness of heart that that suffering has received into. Yes. Uh, good morning, Ajahn. Um, I just wanted to ask, in the Thai forest tradition, I mean, of course, when somebody comes in, they have different proclivities and capacities. But what are the gradual steps of training in meditation and study? Because, I mean, I can already see that if calm abiding is not very well established, it's hard to enter inside practice. So just wanted to have some overview from you on that. <laughs> and uh, what is spoken in terms of enlightenment, full Buddhahood in the southern tradition as opposed to arhatship? Because I also know there is a lot of Mahayana chauvinism saying there are no bodhisattvas in the, you know, I mean, we know there are bodhisattvas in all the traditions. So, thank you. There's a few things there. <laughs> to, to be honest, the, the main focus of training in entering the Thai forest tradition is patient endurance. Kanti parama, para, paramita, patient endurance. And so that's the the kind I would say <laughs> those of us who've lived in this uh, this uh, practice yeah, patient endurance um, that that's the um, the very first uh, expression of uh, guidance of the Buddha uh, which he gave to 1250 arahants uh, the, the first expression of monastic discipline the opening line is kanti paramang tapo titika nibbanang paramang vadanti buddha Patient endurance is the supreme practice for burning up unwholesome karma, the supreme tapas, the supreme austerity. And so, uh, yeah, when people would come to Ajahn Chah and say, Oh, Lumpur, Lumpur, my mind's all over the place, he would say, Oh, Tond, am I? Can you endure it? Uh, they always say, Lumpur, how are you? Poor Tond, I. It's endurable. <laughs> Rather than, I'm fine, you know. It's endurable. Yeah, so patient endurance, because um, with all of the effort or the intention to develop concentration, samadhi, and uh, insight, the fact of living with other people, as all those wonderful people I was talking about, the importance of living harmoniously with, they can be really difficult. We can be really difficult. <laughs> so living with each other. Also, forest tradition life, you're living close to the elements. And so... Uh, just like you know, we have quite cold weather here. Um, when the when the temperature gets down, not quite to this level, but in northeast Thailand, it can drop to I don't know, twelve, ten degrees sometimes. You get a chill wind from the north sometimes. There's no glass in the windows. There's no heating, so there's uh, you and as much robes as you can <laughs> you can gather together. On the, the night of Ajahn Chah's funeral, it was freezing. There's this blasting wind from the north. We all gathered around. Three or four hundred thousand people gathered at the stupid. It was a big crowd. <laughs> Even though we were all huddled together, it was freezing. So uh, then the hot season, you know, being eaten by mosquitoes, 
but mostly living with each other. Uh, no sex, no drugs, no rock and roll, no supper, no bed. <laughs> Just the grass mat to sleep on. and uh, So a, a lot of um, austerity, so patient endurance and simplicity, living close to the elements, then you meet a lot of things that you're accustomed to and acclimatized to and you, you, uh, you expect. And so uh, sometimes uh, somebody can, I mean, when I was, was there, just a very new uh, uh, novice or postulant, uh, I remember when, when the young fellow coming, he's absolutely determined, I think he was from, from Vienna, and he's a very dedicated Dhamma practitioner, been studying Buddhism since he was in high school, come to the forest, want to be a monk for the rest of my life. And when he was told he couldn't have his own supply of chocolate, it's like, this is unbearable, it's inhuman. It's like, and literally left and went back to Austria. It's like, you know, all this aspiration and, and the, the commitment and, and inspiration, like, I'm, I'm going to give my life to this. It's like, no, you can't have your own supply of chocolate. No, everything is shared communally and there isn't any chocolate in, in Auburn at that time. Something just said, no, I can't bear it. So, bearing it. Um, again, rather like compassion. <laughs> Patience in English doesn't quite carry the, the tone of the parameter of patience. Because uh, patience is a, uh, the parameters are the, and this is one instance where the Theravadans have more than the Mahayanas. So we have got ten. In the northern tradition they only have, they only have six. So... <laughs> So that the uh, one instance that the Theravadans have got more. Patience in English carries a sense of sort of gritting your teeth and waiting for something uncomfortable to be over. But the patience, which is a parameter, the parameters are these great spiritual qualities, the means of carrying the heart across the, the, the flood of ignorance and so forth. So uh, patience is essentially a letting go of time. There's no future. So, and uh, that's one of the, the, the ways that Ajahn Chah would talk about. For a true spiritual practitioner, for a samana, uh, a samana has no future. Just even saying those words, like, eh. <laughs> no future. For the punks, that's the kind of, sort of a, a declaration of no future as a sort of uh, anti-social um, uh, torch to bear against the values of the materialistic society. But spiritually, no future is letting go of time. So patience is you're not waiting for something uncomfortable to be over. There's like a total surrender. So again, it's a radiant, bright quality. It's not just a gritting your teeth and waiting for it and just using strength, which is, is better than reacting and running away or just zoning out. But it's that quality of true patience and why patient endurance, the Kanti Paramita, is as the Buddha said, the most transformative practice for, for getting beyond uh, unwholesome qualities is like the feeling the painful results of, of, of being, bo being born, <laughs> having a body, the painful results of our past actions, and, and to be with it, to acknowledge it, and not pushing it away, not wallowing in it, uh, not resenting it, not waiting. There's, that's, a, that's the transformative engine of spiritual practice. So the, you don't get that many meditation retreats focused on patience. Maybe if we'd advertised this week on a week at Deer Park on patience, there would probably be a smaller sign-up. <laughs> what are they going to do to us? <laughs>
Yeah, so we'd have part of it like long periods of sitting. Ajahn Chah used to give talks for two or three hours, three or four hours, and you don't get up or go anywhere. You, you sit and listen. Um, Ajahn Sumedha talks about a, an insightful night. It was about you know, half past one in the morning during one of these lengthy Dhamma talks, and he's being eaten by mosquitoes, he's baking, he's dripping with sweat, and his mind is going, I can't bear it, I can't bear it, I can't bear it. And in this very wonderful insight, even as I'm thinking, I can't bear it, I'm actually bearing it. Oh. <laughs> so the thinker is not to be trusted. So it's not to be self-torturing, just for the sake of you know, believing that something being painful is, is intrinsically liberating, but developing that that uh, spaciousness of heart to be with whatever arises. The karma of birth, having a body, having a mind, and so on and so forth. So, um, then, you know, the, within the, the forest, different monasteries emphasize different approaches. Um, so some places there'll be a lot of formal practice uh, in a group. So Ajahn Chah's monasteries were well known for having a lot of group meditation. Other forest monasteries, it's like, go to your kuti, be alone, don't talk to anyone else, just, you're only together at the arms round in the morning and for the meal and the rest of the time, you're alone, practice by yourself. No morning chanting, no evening chanting, no ceremonies, just formal practice. Um, some places they'll emphasize, you know, the main training is the, the etiquette of the monastery. Like, like one of the forest monasteries, the... Uh, the Ajahn would emphasize you know, the practice of mindfulness is displayed in our ordinary everyday activity. And one of the things he would focus on is how people leave their sandals. And so if you see photographs uh, of, um, uh, of that monastery, like outside the Dhamma Hall, every pair of sandals, they're absolutely lined up truly because they know that the Ajahn is sort of really on that. So that you wouldn't dare leave your sandals at an angle or the toes not lined up. So it's a, um, that's a characteristic. It's a mindfulness training, but uh, that's a, a focus of one particular monastery. Another place, the sandals would be kind of <laughs> higgledy-piggledy, but there would be an emphasis on some particular aspect of, of, uh, of the practice. So it varies. It's, there's, there's no centralized system, but the strict practice of, of Vinaya and the general focus on meditation is, this is a usual thing. Some places, yeah, uh, there's a lot of physical work going on, so that if you go there, you know, you're going to be mixing a lot of cement. The women as well as the men, you know. When Ajahn Shah was establishing Wapapong in the 1950s, in order to protect all the animals in the monastery, in northeast Thailand, not to upset vegetarians here, but basically there's a, there's a local saying that says, if it moves and it doesn't have wheels, you can eat it. So, and the soil is very, very poor, and the, the uh, life is very, very harsh there. And so, having a forest with lots of animals, uh, squirrels and birds and deer and um, iguanas, snakes, <laughs> ants, you know, locals would come into the forest to help themselves. And so Ajahn Shah decided to build a wall around the whole monastery, both to create more of a sense of enclosure around the forest and also to protect the, the wild creatures living there. You've got beautiful iguanas that uh, uh, were part of the forest life. And uh, uh, the nuns cast 100,000 concrete blocks 
mix the cement and cast the blocks, and then the monks took the blocks and built the wall. So everyone gets to join in. <laughs> so forest monastery life can be can be very physical, and uh, yeah, not all of the time, but from time to time. Um, Northeast Thailand is very very flat, and near the town of Amnatura, and there was a a small kind of conical hill, a kind of a rocky outcrop. And a local um, wealthy layperson said, um, if you can find a way up uh, the mountain, up this hill, I'll build a monastery on the top for you. Uh, I'll pay for the whole thing. And so they, they, it was quite a rugged landscape, and they thought they couldn't get a road up there. Ajahn Chah camped out for a week and figured out how you could get the road in. And so then he moved up the, you know, a huge number of monks and novices from the main monastery to build this road up to the top of the hill. So the, the young Ajahn Sumedho was new, in the, new to, to the monastery, was part of that. And after like a day and a half of breaking rocks and pushing, carrying them around in the, in the heat of the, of the sun, he went to Ajahn Chah and said, uh, Paul, um, you know, this, this, this rock breaking and road building, it's not very good for my practice. My mind is very kind of agitated and upset. You know? uh, I, I think I'd pref- you know, if it's okay, I would just prefer to do formal practice instead. And, and to his surprise, Ajahn Chah said, oh, fine, no problem, Sumedho, but I better tell the rest of the group so that everyone's aware that you've got this special permission. And so, yeah, Ajahn Chah, he, he, yeah, you can tell what's coming. You know, because he's quite a performer. So he said, I want to sang a meeting, sang a meeting, everyone come around. So, so Tan Sumedho, you know, I know he's the only Westerner here, but he's very serious about the practice. And so I've given him permission to meditate by himself. All the rest of us will be breaking rocks and moving and making the road. But, and that's fine, but Sumedho's got my permission to, to be uh, uh, doing formal practice. So in this little kind of rough kuti he had, sort of bamboo and palm leaves uh, kuti, he's sitting there and he can hear all the noise of the, of the road making going on in the background, all the kind of... And then and he's feeling like, oh, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? Why am I so... Why do I have to be so special? This is... What an idiot. And after half a day, okay, I give up. <laughs> and then road building becomes the practice, yeah, for a time. That's what you do. So it's very varied. But that strict practice of the discipline, general focus on formal meditation, and then an ongoing mindfulness, basically using the, the life and the, the structure of discipline as a, a means of developing wisdom, um, seeing how the mind reacts to like and dislike, comfort and discomfort, uh, food and sleep and, and all of those things. Yeah, not to go into too much detail, but... Uh, it's also, um, the forest monasteries, many of the dutangas are practiced, what they call the austere practices that the Buddha allowed. There's 13 of these, like eating just one meal a day, only eating the food that you're given in the village, not any food that's brought to the monastery, uh, not lying down to sleep, um, only using three postures, sitting, standing, and walking, um, only, wearing, only using three robes, um, uh, not using a, a dwelling, like sitting and just uh, using the shade of a tree as your dwelling, and so forth. So the Buddha did allow some ascetic practices, but they're quite limited. And so uh, many forest monasteries have those uh, as a standard. And they're basically, they're, they're kind of helping you get a perspective on the reptile brain. Food, sleep, personal space, physical comfort. So all of those are <laughs> inroads are made into that. If you only have one meal a day and nothing else, you get very focused on mealtime. 
If you are if you are only using three postures, you're not lying down to sleep. You get very aware of sleepiness <laughs> and physical discomfort. If you uh, if you only have three robes to wear, then sometimes you're you know you're too cold. Sometimes uh, you know you, you you need to wash things, and yeah, it's uh, things that are not convenient. So uh, it's challenging those instinctual areas of food, sleep, territory, comfort. Not to torture yourself, but just to say, look, when I you know, haven't had enough sleep, then how do I handle that? If I'm hungry you know, half the day, how do I handle that? If, uh, if I haven't got any personal space, I've got no dwelling, I'm just under a tree, uh, how do I handle that? So that you're, you're digging into those reptile brains of non-conceptual, <laughs> non-verbal areas of re- re- uh, reactivity that... Again, like the kind of the animal version of self-view, it's not sort of a I. <laughs> there's no kind of wording of I am, but that when you're, uh, if you're really tired, you're really hungry, uh, you're really un- uncomfortable, then, uh, or like Ajahn Sumedho in the middle of the night at half past one, being eaten by mosquitoes and pouring with sweat. Uh, well, if I don't make anything of it, it's fine. <sighs> so that uh, that that's a lot of the forest monastery life. Again, not to be quoting my own literature, but if you look at that chapter called The View from the Center, I talk all about that. The the whole essay is all about that. The view from the the center, the view from the south, the view from the north, and the view from the center. It's all there in in Roots and Currents, the view from the center. Yes, gentleman in the front there. A couple of days ago in the morning, you uh, said not to be carried away with the, the rupa, the form, and the perception. And towards the end, you also mentioned uh, uh, vijnan, the consciousness, or rather the discriminating consciousness. Um, I'm still having trouble to make sense of that. It almost sounds like, uh, like, pardon me for my ignorance, but it almost sounds like the devil's word to say not to be carried away with the... Um, with the consciousness or the discriminating consciousness for that matter? Um, they're, they're related, so the rupa, form and perception and consciousness that uh, you know, you're perceiving form. Um, the, the not being carried away is all to do with the attitude of mind, whether it's a, a coarse object or a refined object, um, whether it's a, like a, a focused state of mind, um, that's very clear uh, the mind can still grab hold of that and, and get lost in it get absorbed in it so it's the, the, the carried awayness whether it's a coarse object or medium or a refined object that, that's the, the, the aspect to be attentive to and then the, the practice is a lot about learning not to get caught and not to get uh, entangled in that, that kind of a way is that what you're asking? That's perception, right? That's not consciousness or discriminating consciousness. Well, the, the way I was talking about discriminative consciousness or sense consciousness, uh, that's the, the building blocks of experience. So if, you, if your attention is very, very acute and the mind is very clear, then it's, uh, the, there's an ability to, to um, notice how each uh, experience is, is built up out of sound and form and and uh, how the mind is sort of making a particular pattern of experience and what it's adding on to it. So even if that um, sense consciousness uh, is 
that there's that sort of level of, of, of clarity and careful attention that can see that, like the pixels of the, that go to make up the, the mental picture, then still, uh, even if it's that refined, then the, the mind can still be attaching to those, to those objects. That makes sense. So consciousness has its own sangara and samskara. Well, the, that uh, sense consciousness. Uh, so again, it's a, it's a bit of a difficulty with the use of the word consciousness. So that I'm using the word awareness or awakened awareness to refer to the, the actual quality of knowing, and then sense consciousness, vinyana, is more like part of the object realm rather than part of the subject side of it. So it's called sense consciousness, but. Vijnana means partial or fragmented knowing or knowing the parts of. So it's like how things are put together. Um, see, that's what that, the word means in its, in its essence. So even though we, consciousness in the ordinary usage of it is referring to that, that the knowing quality, the cognizing quality, uh, in the five khandas I would say it's, it's um, more the, the uh, objective side of that, how an experience is built up. Like the sanya, when the, that's being described, it's like saying, it is yellow, it's blue, it's green. This is what is called you know, perception or sense perception. Like, so it's describing the different qualities of the object, like a, the perception of a sound, it's loud, it's quiet, so on. So that in the five khandas, it's really talking about the different uh, attributes of the objective realm, as, as far as I understand it. But like uh, another interpretation of the of the meaning of the word being parts, uh, so one of the parts can also be the subject or the knower. It, it could be, um, but it depends how that's uh, interpreted. I think it, it's um, it's more helpful to to think of the five khandas as uh, um, it's, it's not it's not fixed, but the. That quality of, I mean, you, you can't know a color without it being cognized. So there is a, uh, a kind of a registering element uh, of that, like it's, as how it's actually the, the, the electrical impulse lands in the visual cortex or the auditory cortex or wherever. So like, there is a kind of a, a mental flash, but that which is knowing that flash, it, I would say, is that quality of awareness or vicha. That makes sense. Um, it's difficult to put into words, but the more that you you meditate with it, you practice with it, then it's the 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 source of knowing uh, in its essence is that quality of vicha of awareness, and then the qualities of that which the mind is aware of are, are the different kinds of consciousness. Because also. In the um, fire sermon, which we might chant this evening, the, the third of the Buddhist discourses, it talks about eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, mind consciousness. So those are all kinds of vinyana, chakku vinyana, sota vinyana, gana vinyana, jiva vinyana, kaya vinyana, mano vinyana. So uh, there, there aren't strict fix or fixed dividing lines, but it, it's... Um, uh, I say in terms of the experience and the, the work of meditation, that's how I find it most helpful to divide it up. So I hope you're not more confused than you were when you asked the question. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm taking it as uh, uh, not believing in the absoluteness of the, of the consciousness. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, another thing, if I may ask, uh, 
does ajan mean someone who has transcended through the chanas like without any walls between them achan is the thai pronunciation of the word acharya which means teacher so it doesn't mean ajana like without jana <laughs> it's a completely different word in thai language the uh, the r sound becomes an n so acharya becomes achan easy mistake to me this fellow with the glasses yeah please venerable sir um you mentioned that there are only three ways in which you can sleep you can't lie down and sleep yes so you don't lie down yeah i did that for more than three years wow <laughs> i was very keen in my yeah as a young monk but you can do it now right like you can sleep i can i can sleep leaning against the uh, i can sleep kind of anywhere actually <laughs> and after I, i spent a sabbatical year in india and I, my tolerance for ambient sound also became very <laughs> commodious so this is a really really quiet place i must say deer park is incredibly quiet just a, a few crows and a couple of dogs and occasional vehicle this is really really quiet especially the early morning but the, yeah you develop a lot of tolerance for ambient sound as well so i can spacken basically sleep anywhere sitting up lying down whatever and i'm not boasting just sort of just by way of illustrating that so from uh, august of 83 to new year of 87 i didn't lie down or maybe maybe once or twice i think but when i did lie down i was um i it was so weird to be lying down i couldn't <laughs> i couldn't sleep <laughs> my body's like what's this what's this there was some kind of situation i was in and i thought okay this is this is serious i really ought to make sure i get some rest but then i i thought okay it's kind of breaking my resolution but i really need to get a rest but then my it was it was kind of funny i was chuckling to myself I was like okay i'm finally kind of lying down I was like this is so strange physically i'm wide awake yeah. so so it's not a, so uh, for pretty much the entirety of three and a half years i didn't lie down so you mentioned that this is related to in some ways attacking or addressing the reptilian brain yeah so that uh, things that we get very attached to uh, and the condition by in our life um food having a supply of food having our own personal space um physical comfort uh, having enough sleep you know thing <laughs> well yes 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 so when those are challenged and that uh, yeah we're not we're not going to have a food supply all of the time we're not always going to be able to rest we're not always going to have our own space we're not always going to have the clothing that we need or we're not always going to be able to control the temperature that we're at so what do you do what where, where does your mind go when you're cold and you can't get warm probably <laughs> good for you know, this kind of a region yeah. what what do you what do you do when when you're hungry and there isn't any food what do you do when you you're really really sleepy and and there's no possibility of of lying down having a place to rest you haven't got your own place you know what do you do and so it's like developing a, a kind of adaptability a robustness 
so that your happiness, your comfort, your ease can be independent of circumstances. So it's a, it's a deliberate way. So those practices are not obligatory. Many, many monasteries, they're kind of, some of them are standard, like just having one meal a day and such like. But others like, uh, like not lying down to sleep or, or just wearing three robes, um, um, they would be more individual choices. And usually as a young uh, trainee, as a nun or as a monk, uh, you have to ask permission of the teacher. You say, I'd like to take on the practice of just living on alms food that is given in the village rather than in the monastery. Or, or um, I like to take on the practice of, of um, just strictly having one meal a day and, and such like. So then the uh, teacher would give you permission. To... But also, as I think one of the questions came up about things being um, ossified, <laughs> that even though it's about renunciation, I mean, the, uh, uh, the, that new year of, of 1987, at the end of, of that, uh, that year, I decided to give up a lot of those ascetic practices that I was doing. I was, had all kinds of, I was a super strict vegetarian, and I was not lying down, I had all these extra practices I was doing, and I felt just like completely stuffed. All these, all these kind of renunciation things, it was like this massive amount of luggage I was carrying around. I thought, this is defeating the object of the exercise. There's all this stuff that I'm doing. Like, I felt like I was uh, oh, you know, just uh, overfed. Kind of, uh, and, and so uh, I had realized I was not using those particularly wisely. It was just that they're, they're called austerities or renunciations, but actually I was using them as a kind of an accumulation. And it was more things that I'm doing, therefore better. And I realized, what am I doing all this for? <laughs> a, a skillful teacher, if they see that the, the student is getting a bit too caught up in any of those practices or making too much of them or causing themselves harm with it, they'll say, don't do that or keep it in perspective. I'm a slow learner in some respects because um, I came back to England at the end of 79 and Chithurst Monastery in Sussex had just started up. And um, the next rains retreat from the full moon of July to the full moon of October, I asked permission from Ajahn Sumaita if I could take on the practice of just having the one meal and only water during the rest of the day. Like no tea or coffee or no, no anything else, just, just the one meal and nothing but water for the rest of the day. So he gave me permission for that. And I was, uh, so I was living that way for that, that rains retreat. And so then... Uh, about halfway through the rains retreat, there was this uh, a, a conference. They, they built a peace pagoda, one of the Nishidasu Fuji peace pagoda, the first one had been built in England, Milton Keynes. And there was a little kind of peace conference around this, uh, this peace pagoda. And so the Ajahn invited me to go along uh, with him um, just as an attendant. And so halfway through this, about, about four o'clock in the afternoon, the, the novice who was with us was particularly adept at finding what they call allowable sweets, things that are kind of sugary things that come into the category of medicines and tonics that, that you can have in the afternoon. And so uh, he, he gave these, the, these sweets to Ajahn Sumedho, and then Ajahn Sumedho held out this, this kind of toffee bar to me. And I, uh, and I looked at him as, as if to say, but Ajahn, you know I've taken on this, this practice of having nothing except water outside the mealtime. And he gave me the look that said, yes, I know. <laughs> and, I'm not, and I'm not withdrawing the toffee bar. <laughs> and so I thought, this is a teaching. 
So I took it, and and uh, and then was very happy to have it. And he, and he said, "Phew!" You know? <laughs> so I thought we had another uh, a, a famous ultra ascetic within our communities. I thought we had another uh, Santajito on our hands, and uh, who was this other monk was famous, notorious for for overdoing it with ascetic practices. And so I thought, well, that was a teaching. <laughs> so those things, they're, they're skillful means. And they're allowed, but they are, and they're, they're very much part of the forest monastic life. Is the, the, they're called dutangas, which is, literally means uh, a method of shaking off uh, the defilements. Yeah, there's a question right at the back there. You're surrounded by uh, certain causes, conditions, and you are an outcome of uh, your innate as well as acquired relationships over a period of time while living with your spouse, your children, your friends, your investors, and, and, these, and the environment in which you live. Is it possible to change this without changing the environment? Um, when you are faced with adversity or, or, or any conflict, you can't say, give me a break, I'm just going to go for a meditation and let me get mindful and I'll come back and give you the answer. How does one reprogram by staying in the same environment? Yeah, good question. Um, it's certainly possible because attitude is really the, the essential element. The attitude. So even though in a way it's the same situation, the same rooms, the same people, it, uh, our, the attitude of the heart can be quite different towards it. So there has to be the intention or the interest to change the way that you're relating to other people and the situation, the way you handle your work, your responsibilities, your uh, initiatives. That's really the interest. There has to be a, a putting forth the effort to, to, to do that. You can't just, yeah, I really want to change things and then just <laughs> carry on as per usual. That doesn't help. So you have to uh, say, be interested to do it, to apply energy to it, and also to think it through. Okay, how can I bring about changes? What are the things here that, that I can do in terms of my attitude, the way that I speak, the way that I relate to, to others, um, that can make things different. So thinking things through, and so that uh, and using our, our imagination, our intelligence, our, our kind of familiarity with the patterns of the, the workplace or the family or uh, the political sphere, whatever is your sort of domain of activity. Uh, and one of the best uh, situations is using the meditation, not just to get quiet, but to pick up a question like, okay, so. Things are quite equable with person A, B, and C. Things are really difficult and challenging whenever I have to engage with D and E. So, <laughs> what, what, turn, what makes things go pear-shaped or difficult with those people? Why, why does that cause difficulties? And just exploring. Going using your memory, okay, what, how have things been in the past? Okay, what did I, I you know, oh, they, they used that, that term, and they, you know, that was a trigger and I went off and and uh, I got excited about this or irritated by that. You're using your memory, your imagination, uh, uh, kind of intelligence, that wise reflection, to look at the patterns that, uh, that have been beneficial, the patterns that have been sort of destructive, and then, uh, then being aware of that, uh, acquainting yourself with, with uh, that, bringing that to mind, then say, okay, that being the case, 
Uh, and again, using the morning meditation period, if you can have some time by yourself for meditation early in the day, just to set an intention. Uh, so, uh, not trying to do everything all at once, but say, okay, during today, whenever I have to engage with D or E, or whenever I'm asked to talk about them, someone else brings them up in conversation, pay attention. Look at the, the, the verbal habits that I have and see if I cannot get drawn into contention or, or not just reacting in the same way, not assuming um, that uh, the, the worst about that person or not assuming that I know where they're coming from. Let's see, uh, as a project for today or for this week, let's see if I can do that. And so uh, I'm a great advocate for these sort of little Dharma projects. You know, they focus on one particular area and really flag that. So, and, and often it can be that after, at the end of the day, again, if you sort of sit down and consider, it's like, well, that was a complete failure. <laughs> uh, the, the eight conversations I had, I lost it every time. Okay, well, at least you know, well, that's, that's how it works. Right, okay, that really does need attention. So let's keep an eye on that because that's where the ruts are. Okay, now we know where the ruts are, we can work with that. So you're living in the same situation, you're working with the same people, the same environment, but it's, it's like an attitudinal shift and the readiness to work with situations. Because you can't change other people, um, but you can change yourself. And also, we are part of the environment. So that as your attitude shifts and your, the way that, that you work, shifts and that also has its effect upon the group and the place and, and how you function how everybody feels so it's not like me here and the environment there moment by moment we're contributing to that so uh, staying within the situation where you are and then looking at it in, with a, a broad openness and then using those skills and then the last part I would say is what's uh, called vimangsa is a Okay, how is this working? I've been, I've been using this particular approach or I've been aiming to develop this particular shift of attitude for the last two weeks or a month. Okay, what's the result of that? So, and how, does the, how does it feel here? Uh, what's changed? Or, or you know, things that, what's better, what's worse, what's, what, what's just remained in a similar way? So that um, these are called the four bases of success, the four idipada interest, energy, uh, and then investigation or wise reflection. And then the fourth one is reviewing. So the first three work together, chanda, virya, and chitta, and, and which means that inter chanda is interest, uh, virya, energy, and then and chitta in this respect means consideration or wise reflection. And then vimangsa is, okay, did it work? <laughs> What's the result? So then that's the feedback process. Okay, well that that worked really well. Or like, oh well, I I had a good intention about trying to speak in that such and such a way, but wow, that really went wrong. That was people really misread that or, or took exception to that. Okay, that that one <laughs> went really sour. Right, take note of that. So then that reviewing of the the results of the choices that we've made, then that feeds back in, and then being guided and informed by that. Chanda, Virya, Jitta, Vimangsa, the four bases of success. Yeah. Venerable, um, I was wondering um, why is it that uh, 
meditation like sitting by yourself and reflecting is the primary means of you know insight or analysis what about things like writing could we do the same thing by writing i'm speaking as somebody who gets very easily distracted during meditation <laughs> <laughs> good concentration for 10 minutes and then going down so uh, things like writing or maybe talking to somebody mm-hmm. uh, who helps reflect back things to you what about these two ways of working through things yeah one of my basic ethics is if it works it's the right thing you know that that's uh, solitary meditation is a, a, a very well known and, and uh, uh, usually a useful tool but not everything works in the same way for every person we we are we're different we vary so for some people um uh, writing things down um journaling yeah say clarifying um things with with the written word that that can be useful or combining the two so that if uh, just to 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 feel like oh, I've, i've got a problem I've got this this is a really horrible issue in in the workplace and so uh, how do, how do i deal with this and then just to to sit down with a, a notepad and a pen and say okay so what is the question what 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 really is the question and just sometimes that and then you're jotting things down and say well no that's not quite it then then think well what about this what about that? And then and then just figuring out what the question is can actually help that sense of resolution and picking things through and and seeing what what matters what doesn't matter and, and how things fit together so that wise reflection yoni somanasikara doesn't have to be internal uh as i'm describing that process of just figuring out what the question is and i i've uh, i've done this myself or and recommended it to people over time said you know by the time i figured out what the question was i'd kind of got the answer to <laughs> like because it was before it's just a kind of a blur of thoughts and worry and all these different things playing into it and just the process of figuring out well really what's what's the issue and so well oh, this whole kind of family problem and this and that so, oh i want my sister to like me and she doesn't okay well that's it yeah so she doesn't like me okay <laughs> okay that's it that's that's the whole thing you know and the, i'm not projecting onto your life but you know often these things that the kind of painful and complicated situation often there's something very simple and and basic and sometimes insoluble at the heart say so, okay oh well well that can't be fixed okay <laughs> so just that noting things down with a with a, a pad that can be helpful and uh, and don't think that you you know that's something unique or special um i remember uh, again uh, ajahn sumedha talking about a long standing conflict with one of the other senior monks of our community mentioning no names but for years and years about 7 years there'd been this kind of tension between them and uh, this monk was was due to come and visit and so ajahn sumedha saw and he's a, he's a very reflective and and uh, observant person so he thought the idea of this monk coming to visit is making me kind of anxious and agitated and he says so what is it what, what is it about this person that that i don't like or what's the problem here and he sat down with a legal pad he just started writing <laughs> and then uh, and he said he, uh, the first three pages he filled very very quickly like 
everything that's wrong with him and how it should be and what, what it should be like and, and so on. And then he, he found his hands starting to slow down and then about the fourth page, he said, what else is there? There must be something else. What's, what's the real problem between us, really? What, what's the real thing? And he was, he was astonished that the words, I love you, came into his mind. He said, that's the problem. I really love this guy and things are difficult. And that's why it's so painful. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, and he just hadn't appreciated that because at the surface level there was sort of sharp words or, or kind of different you know, disagreements or um, misunderstandings. And, and he found, well, after <laughs> three and a half pages, <laughs> It's like, oh, the real issue is I love this guy. We've been in this community together for so long and, and it's gone sour and that's painful. Oh, and so then uh, that really <laughs> shifted things for him. But it was exactly that, sitting down with a notepad just to, to write it all out. And, and then he was very happily surprised what happened at the end. So when the, that, just to finish that story, when that, that monk did come to visit, he was kind of surprised at how friendly Ajahn Sumedho was. Like, why, why is he smiling so much? Is this all this warmth radiating? He's, he's, a, he's a big guy and a kind of powerful presence. He's, we could feel this sort of genuine warmth coming from him. He said, what's, what's happened? <laughs> but then the things, things that became much, much more equable between them after that time. So it can be very, very useful. Also, as you're saying, talking with other people. Just that kind of dialoguing with another, just letting somebody know uh, what's on your mind, just sitting down with a good listener. It doesn't have to be someone who can solve everything or explain anything, just someone who's good at listening and you can listen to them. But that can also be a... Uh, the things can come out of a dialogue that you won't be able to discover uh, you know, within yourself, what they call a Socratic dialogue, that in the process of of speaking together, then you're both discovering things that, that neither of you realized that you were aware of or you hadn't fully been conscious of before, that you just emerge from the, 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 the chemistry of the conversation. So let's draw things to a close.